0: Now, if you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Luke today. We are moving on in the book of Luke. We're going we're to throw in pens and pieces of paper all over the place. Go to Luke chapter 8. We're going to pick up right where we left off. And um, let's see, Luke chapter 8. We'll start in verse 22. Now, we have, I've have been looking forward to this teaching for months. Uh, this is such good stuff, but it is a heavy, heavy background. There is a payoff At the end, yes. So, uh, verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. If you have a Bible, circle other side. That is a very significant phrase that we're going to look at. So they got into a boat, and they set out. As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A squall, or a storm, came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Jesus got up. So Jesus is just sleeping through like the swamping of the boat, no problem. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He said to the disciples. Well, that question's always bugged me because what were they supposed to have faith for exactly? they They're in the middle of a lake. They're in danger of drowning. They wake Jesus up. Seems natural to me. He says, where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, oh, there is such good stuff right here. To the Jewish mind, water wasn't a great thing. Okay, water uh, symbolized three different things. None of them were good. First of all, water symbolized chaos. In Genesis chapter 1, right, God has to actually separate the water and the land. The Spirit was hovering over the deep waters. Water represented chaos. Water also represented judgment. Because how does God judge the earth early in Genesis? He allows the separation between the land and the waters to be gone. And so the waters flood the land. All right. So judgment, or you have Jonah being judged into the depths, or Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up uh, by the Red Sea. So you you have a sense of chaos, a sense of judgment. But most directly and specifically, the waters were the place where the evil spirits resided. This place called the abyss. And in in Job and in some of the obscure Psalms, there are references to great sea monsters. Now they're not like literal crocodiles, but these were these were demons. Leviathan or Yam, I mean, these, these gods that existed in the underworld. So, so the point is when Jesus gets woken up from his nap, looks at his guys and says, Hey, why don't you have faith? Hey, storm, shut up. And then the wind and the waters calm instantly. That's Jesus having the power of creation. It'd be like this Suppose we're in the middle of a, a pretty kicking earthquake. And we're in here, and it's rolling, and the lights are shaking, and pieces of the roof are starting to cave in. Jesus walks in and says, be still. And the earth stops instantly. There'd be a bit of fear and amazement, wouldn't you agree? I mean, nobody has that kind of power. So they're they're fearful and amazed, because this isn't your normal sort of -of run-of-the-mill Jewish miracle. This is... His authority over the abyss, his authority over creation. This is a kind of a, a hearkening back a little bit to Genesis when God commands water. All right, now, he does this water thing and he goes, Moses, verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Garrisones. Now, what we've got to do is we've got to go to the parallel account in Mark. There are four gospels. And a lot of them repeat the same material, sometimes in a different order. And Mark and Luke, they record these stories exactly alike, except for one detail Mark adds. And that detail really adds some some juicy stuff to this. So I I want you to go to the book of Mark chapter 4, and we're going to read the account there. Usually we've just been sticking with Luke and not going to the parallel accounts. But this one, I think, is going to be worth our time. So go to Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm and then confronts a demon-possessed guy. He's going to calm the storm here and confront the same demon-possessed guy. But I want you to notice something. Mark chapter 4. So you you have, uh, in verse 35, you have the same calming of the storm, miracle that we just read. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, notice it says, they went across the lake To the region of the Garrusenes. Now, same thing Luke said, but I want to show you where that region turns out to be. All right, so let's fire this iPad up. Here's the idea this Capernaum Capernaum, was Jesus' home base, and there were three Jewish little towns or villages that were called kind of the triangle because Jesus did a lot of his miracles there and a lot of his ministry there. When it says that Jesus was going across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, he's crossing the lake in this direction to a region called, and can you see what it says? The Decapolis. Deca is ten, polis is city. So it was ten city-states that were totally pagan. They were Hellenized, so they were Greek in influence. Totally pagan, and that they worshiped the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. It was considered, and it was right across the lake, eight miles across the lake was this Gentile region. All right? Now, things you've got to know about the Decapolis. Good Jewish rabbis would never go there. All right? It was just considered, the whole region was considered unclean because of the Gentiles that were there, the tombs that were there, the unclean animals that were being herded around there. It was just not a place that good Jewish rabbis would ever go. So when Jesus says, hey, disciples, let's go across the lake. And then, as they're crossing the lake, there's this storm that Jesus stills. Th- this is Mark and Luke, Luke's way of telling you, hey, there's something going on here. This is Jesus is going to a dark place. Now, the Decapolis was called the Land of the seven. All right? Even though there were ten cities called the Decapolis, the Jews referred to that region, according to their tradition, as the land of the seven. And I need to show you why they used that term. Keep your finger in Mark. Flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just really quickly, bless you. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I want to show you why that region, that, that region used to... Um, hold the half-tribe of Manasseh when the promised land was originally taken. But it was called the land of the seven for the seven nations that were driven out of the promised land when Joshua and Israel took it over. So, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations... Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. So the reason it was called the land of the seven was because these were the ancestors, the remnants of those seven nations that existed right on the outside of the land of Israel. Are you with me so far? Okay, now, back to Mark and the iPad. When you see this, so this is, this is the place where Jesus did most of his miracles. It was called the land of the twelve. Now what symbolism does twelve have? Twelve tribes. So the Galileans believed themselves to be the true remnant of the true Israel. So they called it the land of the twelve because these were the faithful Jews. These were the, this was the true remnant of the Jews. The land of the seven was across this way. So Jesus travels from the land of the twelve to the land of the seven. That becomes important in a moment. Now, one other detail about the Decapolis. The Decapolis was Greek. And as a Greek city, region of city-states, they worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. One of the most important deities of the Decapolis was this guy. This is Dionysius. Say hello. Dionysius has an interesting backstory. Now these are so convoluted because they were Greek and then they were Romanized and then there are different regions and different emphases so it's kind of convoluted but here was uh, some of his backstory. Dionysius was the god uh, who was the son of Zeus and the son of a mortal woman called Samala. So he was considered a son of God, interestingly enough, because he was the son of Zeus and the son of a mortal woman. So he was human and divine. Interestingly, he was considered the god of fertility because he died. His he died in his mother's womb, but Zeus resurrected him, and this is so odd. And sewed him into his thigh, where he developed full term and was born from Zeus's thigh. I know it's awesome. And, and so, he was the God of new birth, or he was the God of resurrection. He was thought to have died and had risen again, interestingly enough. The way that you worshipped Dionysius was through wine, because wine was evidence of new life, new birth, regrowth, and so, so we know him as Bacchus. Uh, was another of his titles. This is the, this is the, the god of the fraternities and the sororities. This is, right? This is the god of wine. And, and it was thought, I kid you not, it was thought that one of the powers of this guy was to turn water into wine. And that once a year during his festival, he would turn water into wine. Interestingly enough. One last bit of background about this guy is that one of the rituals you would undergo when you were worshipping Dionysius, is that you would ingest the meat of sacred animals. Thinking, the belief was, that as you ingested the meat of the sacred animals, you were ingesting a bit of the god or the goddess. Now, one of the sacred animals ingested by the followers of Dionysius were pigs. Let us read the rest of the story. Mark chapter 5, verse 2. So, Jesus went across the lake. When he got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, so the man is doubly unclean. He has this impure spirit, and he's been living in tombs. So, Jesus is entering an unclean region and finds an unclean man instantly. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? And then notice this interesting title, Son of the Most High God. In God's name, don't torture me. So it's the impure spirit talking. For Jesus had said to this spirit, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So evidently there were many impure spirits in this guy. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, the plot thickens. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. So immediately, when you read there were herds of pigs, you know this is not a Jewish region, correct? The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number. Okay, so this is not a household herd. This is a community, regional herd of pigs, the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the what? Lake. Which is the abyss. abyss, and were drowned. Now, we can't know for sure that this is what was exactly happening, but it seems like here comes Jesus into a heavenly Greek Gentile region. One of the deities was a, a son of God who turned water into wine, rose from the dead, and was worshipped through the sacrifice and the ingesting of pigs. Jesus comes and encounters a very unclean man who has impure spirits. He takes the impure spirits, he throws them into the unclean animals, and then those unclean animals go into the abyss. Do you see the imagery a little bit? And I think this is right based on the response of the people Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were what? And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. Now why? Why? I mean, this guy would have been really well known as the dude in the tombs who cries out and cuts himself, right? You would have known about this guy. Why is it, if it's such a powerful miracle, that this guy is now clean, dressed in his right mind, why are they begging Jesus to leave? It could be that here comes the Son of God, changing water into wine, who will rise from the dead after his death. Who just happens to have authority? over impure spirits and pigs and cast them into the abyss. Perhaps what was so terrifying is that they saw their false god subdued by this Jewish rabbi. Maybe. Why else would they beg him to leave? Now, the plot thickens. Verse 18. As Jesus, and by the way, you don't have to agree with this. Research it yourself. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And could you blame him? No! Where am I going to go? I've been the dude in the tombs cutting myself, right? I just had a legion of demons. I mean, I I don't want to go back home at this point. Jesus, you're up to something. I want to go with you. Jesus did not let him, interestingly enough, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Now, the way Mark writes his gospel... When Jesus is in a Jewish region and does a miracle, he warns everybody, don't say anything. Here, in a non-Jewish region, he says, go tell people how much the Lord has done for you. So what's Jesus saying about himself? The Lord. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. All right, now. Are you with me so far? All right, it gets better. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. So he went to the land of the seven and he's now back to the primarily Jewish part of the Sea of Galilee, all right? Then you have a whole bunch of episodes and incidents that take place while he's over there. I want want to show you one. Go to chapter 6, verse 30. This is Jesus in the Jewish region. Chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So Jesus had just sent them out. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them recognized them as they were leaving and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. Now, he recognizes they're hungry, so he begins a miracle called the feeding of the 5,000. He says to his disciples, hey, verse 37, you give them something to eat. The disciples said, well, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They found out they had five and two fish. Jesus directed the people to sit down. He breaks them in the group of 50 and he feeds them. Jump down to verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up, how many? Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who'd eaten was 5,000. So the number was bigger than that. So interesting, in the land of the twelve, you pick up twelve. Now that could be total coincidence. Absolutely. Flip the page, however. Go, if you would, to chapter 6, verse 50. Oh, no, let's do this. Oh, you're going to love it. Let's go to um, verse uh, 47. 47. Jesus is going to cross back over to the Decapolis region, and as he does, he walks on water. It's just interesting. Both times he visits there, he demonstrates authority over the abyss. I just love it. So, verse 47 of that same chapter, Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. He was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. One of the reasons why I trust this is because it's so unadorned. It's not... It's just like, yeah, he just had to catch up, so he just strolls. Just totally unimpressive, you know? Yeah, he was just walking on the lake. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, for they were completely amazed. They did not for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What what does the loaves have to do with walking on water and not believing it was him? I mean, that, that seems random. Would you agree? That just seems kind of odd. Verse 53. When they had crossed over the lake, they landed in Gennesaret and anchored there. So where are they? So, he goes from the land of the twelve, the land of the seven, back to the land of the twelve. And now he's back to the Decapolis region. Are you following so far? Okay, I need more than just the first few rows. I need the back row. Just wave at me. Just say, we're here. We're happy to be here. And you are making 50% sense right now. Now, notice this time when Jesus shows up to that region, notice the different response. As soon as he got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. So this is different from begging him to leave. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Oh, well, that's interesting. right? That's a little different than let's beg him to leave. In fact, we now enter into a period of ministry in that region. Go, if you would, to chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, and now it gets so good. So good. So, this is still the region of the Decapolis. During those days, another large crowd had gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, Hey, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days. So that's how compelling Jesus was. Three days you would sit and listen to him teach. And they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. His disciples said, yeah, but where can we get bread? I'm so glad we're not like them. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. He Broke bread, eat seven loaves, and oh, interestingly enough, the bread multiplies, so they have enough. Verse 8, the people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up, how many? Oh, isn't that interesting? In the Jewish region, called the land of the twelve, there are twelve basketfuls left over, and in the Gentile region, called the land of the seven, there are seven basketfuls left over. Now, that's totally coincidence, right? Right? But if that's true, then look at verse 17 of that same chapter. Jesus is warning the disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Why? And, 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 and they think it's really a conversation about bread and yeast. And He says, why are you still talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you, know, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full did you pick up? 12? And when I broke seven loaves for 4,000, how many full of pieces did you pick up? Seven? And then he just simply says, do you still not understand? In other words, those numbers aren't random. What's Jesus saying? I came to feed the Jews and I came to feed the Gentiles. So let me get this straight. Jesus travels across a lake, subduing the underworld and its power in the process, encounters a man possessed by unclean spirits that he sends into a herd of pigs, which coincidentally could have been used in the worship of the local false god. The pigs then are sent into the very abyss that Jesus had just demonstrated authority over, and the people are terrified. Why? Why? This Jewish peasant has just undermined the local economy and the local divinity in one fell swoop. The man who'd just been restored naturally says, Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. Go tell people about what I've done. Now, it could have been that Jesus was there more often than what Mark records. We don't know. But if you just take what's written in Mark... When Jesus comes back, crowds are now flocking to him, and the only explanation we have is that one man was sent into the region. Go and tell of the mercy God has had on you. And 4,000 show up. We're reading in a bit of the white spaces. Could have happened differently, no question. But if what we know about the Decapolis is correct and what we know about Dionysius is correct, then I find it very, very interesting that these seemingly random episodes in the Gospels turn out to have a far more beautiful significance than just, oh, here's Jesus walking on water and feeding people, correct? Because what do you learn about Jesus? He's the Creator. He has the power of creation. He has the power of Genesis 1. He speaks and creation obeys. There's only one person that does that in the Bible. That is Yahweh. He has the authority over the power of death and the spirits that reside within it. That he comes to the Jews and fills them up. And he goes to the pagans and fills them up. As clear as he could say it, he would say it today, I came for you. In whatever darkness you're in, whatever region you live, wherever you were last night, or whatever you were doing, this Messiah pursues us relentlessly. And we'll go. He won't just wait for us to get our act together and get cleaned up and find religion before he starts moving at us. In the very darkness you're in, he's there. I just think that's magnificent. And so he says in ways that were unmistakable to the people of his time, I will go even to the darkest places to embody and announce the good news of the kingdom of God. But the thing that hits me most about this story is the power of one man's testimony. Jesus could have done other things. Maybe they were hearing from the other side of the lake things that Jesus was doing. But if you just take it as it's here, the only difference between the first visit and the second was the dude that was sent. Without a seminary degree, without Bible radio, right? I mean, with nothing except his story. Now, I'm a huge fan of seminary. I'm a huge fan of training. I'm a huge fan I'm a huge fan. But very often, here's what I hear people say. Yeah, I've sat in church and I've followed Jesus for decades, but I really don't feel equipped to share my faith. And I just go, ah, well, okay, let's talk about that for a second. First of all, you have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. Secondly, you have the Word of God. Thirdly, you have the people of God. And fourthly, you have a story about the mercy God has shown you. Seems like that's enough. enough. See, each and every one of you, if you're a follower of Christ, you have a decapolis. You have a dark place. Could be a family relationship. Could be a work. Could be the crazy person in your dorm down the hall. I mean, you all got it. What would happen if 1,500 of us decided this week, just this week, to share our story with one person? What, what, what do you think God could do with that? See, I'm just so tired of Christians bemoaning our losses in the cultural battles and yet they say nothing about the mercy that Jesus has shown us oh we're bold on social media and we're cowards in relationship okay what this does for me is it just confronts the Jesus who wants to go into the dark places and who looks at me and simply says go and tell of the mercy You don't have to have it all figured out. I don't know is an acceptable answer. I love in the book of Acts, there's a testimony of a blind man who just simply says, I don't know who Jesus is, but I was blind and now I see. Argue with that. And there's so many great resources. There's so, so much good training out there, but don't wait. What God Oh, I wish I could share some of the stories of what God's doing in a decapolis He's called me into, and the power of just simply being present, and when people ask me, "How did you become a pastor?" Because there's a stereotype that isn't quite matching the reality. And you know what I get to do? I tell them my story. This is what I was, and this is what God has done. And what's being birthed out of that is a hunger. And so, brothers and sisters, if we believe that this Jesus who is who he says he is, well, he looks at you and says, just go and tell of the mercy. That's it. Trust that I will take care of the details. You're not doing this by yourself. What would happen if 1,500 people just decided to do that one week? What would happen I dare say we'd have to start another service and we need more parking people. (laughs) Just to be clear. Because wherever Jesus goes, His clean trumps whatever unclean He encounters, right? So close your eyes for a moment, if you would. For those of you who are new to the Jesus thing, the church thing, you're skeptical, you're doubting, you're wondering as clear as we could say it, as declarative as the Scriptures could narrate it, this Jesus has come for you in your darkness. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He's not horrified. He knows it all and still pursues. Back then and even today, people drop everything to follow Him. And we invite you to do the same abandon you as Lord of your life and embrace him. And we just invite you to say yes to him. If you don't know how or what that means at the end of every service, there are folks in our prayer room who would just love to tell you. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, maybe there needs to be a bit more urgency that we're not just biding time kind of doing our own thing. There's actually work to be done and you're equipped for it. There isn't one other thing you need to just tell of the mercy. And so I just want to give you a moment to think of the Decapolis that sits near you and what would it be like to have you healed in order to be a healer, you restored so that you can restore, you shown mercy so that you could announce mercy to others. Just take a moment and ask God to show you what that would look like and where that would be. And so, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of his kingdom, would you wake us up Would you give us boldness and compassion and courage? Father, would you create urgency in our hearts and our spirits to see what it is you're up to, to see the authority and the power you have over everything we're wrestling with, to see that you invite us to come with you to the dark places in our world. So Father, may many come to know Jesus because of the missionaries you have assembled here this morning. Have mercy on us, Father. Have mercy. Amen.